On this episode of the Physio Foundations podcast, I'm going to talk to physiotherapist and anatomy educator Abby DeKretzer about managing hip, pelvic, and spine conditions and her experiences teaching applied anatomy. Welcome back to the Physio Foundations podcast, where we talk about the knowledge and skills that provide the foundation of expert clinical practice. So today I'm talking to Abby DeKretzer. The Abby's another colleague and good friend of mine from Monash University Physiotherapy, where she teaches applied anatomy to our first and second year students. And she's also the principal physiotherapist at Universal Practice in Fitzroy in Melbourne, Australia, where she works with a variety of clients ranging from everyday people to elite athletes. Abby has post-grad qualifications in sports physio and expertise in Pilates and sports-related rehab. And she always has a lot of passion and enthusiasm for our profession and for education, which is why I want to get her on and have a chat to her. So Abby's been on my list uh, for a Physio Foundations episode since the beginning, and I finally got her on. So it's a pleasure to finally have you on the podcast, Abby. Abby DeKretza, welcome to Physio (laughs) Foundations. Thanks, Luke. So nice to finally be here. That's great. Um, What did I miss in my introduction? Anything else that you'd add there about who you are and what you do? Um, No, I think that was very comprehensive. Um, The only other thing that I've just recently started is a role at SportsMap, which is um, an education platform for sports physiotherapists. So I'm now working there um, in collaboration with my work at the clinic just two and a half days a week, uh, doing some organisation of their events and content for the website and their podcast as well. That's great. So you've just started that role? Yeah, just started at the end of last year. Good fun. Um, so it's brand so, new. Yeah, Sports Map are going really well, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners know about them. Um, yeah, and so yeah. So well, why don't you tell us a little bit about that role, and then we can talk about your clinical role, and then then we'll move into the other topics. Um. So yeah, Sports Map's a great one because it uh, ties in with my educational focus that I have with anatomy, and that I've um, really enjoyed for quite a while. So they run a variety of conferences, courses, um, and online masterclasses that. Uh, aimed at upskilling physiotherapists in the latest research and um, skills from our sort of top tier physiotherapists from Australia and around the world. Um, so I've been working with them, doing a little bit of organisation and, and content creation, which has been great. And then also working in the clinic with a variety of patients um, across the other two and a half days of the week. Yeah, well, Sports Map, sports map not a sponsor uh, yet. But um, just <laughs> supporting the um, supporting my colleagues out there who are doing good things. So yeah, let's talk about your clinical work. Let's tell the listeners who you are and in terms of your background and interests and where you work and what you do, and then we'll segue sure. into your special interest areas. Um, so I have been a physio for quite a number of years now. I um, started off working in the public hospital system. So I was there for about two years. Uh, and then I transitioned from um, public hospital into private practice. And I've been in private practice for about eight or nine years now. Um, I'm currently the principal physio at Universal Practice. So we have a clinic in Fitzroy and a clinic in Malvern um, and treat a variety of clients just from regular musculoskeletal sporting injuries to um, chronic pain to um, I do a lot of clinical Pilates work with um, some elite athletes from the AFL and gymnastics, um, which is probably my biggest area of passion in terms of working working with them. And that's been great. I've had been lucky enough to have a bit of a variety of exposure to, to different people through that. Nice. So tell us about some of your key career turning points and sort of what led you led to you developing expertise in Pilates and then bringing that into your practice how did you get Mm. where you are now Mm -mm. so I was um I was pretty lucky I had a really good foundation um in also rehab and and um, community health and things through my public hospital exposure and then while I was there I started teaching clinical Pilates two nights a week and just as a bit of a way I always thought I wanted to get into private practice but I wasn't sure and so it was a great introduction into that into that world while I was still working in the public health system Um, and then from there I transitioned to working um, at Melbourne Physiotherapy and Pilates 
um, and fitness group in St Kilda um, and we had a really strong clinical Pilates program there. So Wendy Brayburn, who was the head physio VAS um, and worked closely with Gymnastics Australia, um, was the principal physio there along with Greg Cunningham who had worked at Melbourne Physio as their head physio um, for a number of years. So they also had quite a strong um, connection to elite sport through those two um, physiotherapists and through Wendy, we saw um, as junior physios, a lot of the elite athletes for their clinical Pilates. So that really started me off um, in my strong background in Pilates. Um, and then from there, I moved to universal practice um, a few years later. And again, we had strong connections through um, Sammy Prouse, who's the owner with our Hawthorne Football Club and Carlton Football Club. Um, and I started doing a little bit of work with them um, and Melbourne Football Club, actually, um, as their Pilates providers, I guess. Um, and then on top of that, I've done my sports masters. So that's sort of led me down. I um, had a strong interest in hip and pelvis um, and spine injuries. And I think that ties in a lot with what we see in clinical Pilates as well. Um, and so that's been my main focus over the past few years in terms of my physio treatments. How does clinical Pilates help contact sport athletes? Uh, you think of it as a dance background and origin of, of Pilates. Um, so, so what, what, what do you add to their, their normal training and strength and conditioning? What do you actually do? Yeah. It's actually interesting with clinical players with those elite athletes because I think they're obviously very strong. So the focus with them is more around, I think, control. So they're obviously very globally strong, but I think sometimes with that global strength comes a little bit of compression in through their joints, so particularly in through their hips and particularly in through the lumbar spine. So we work with them on um, – controlling their range of movement, decompressing a little bit through the hips and the lumbar spine, but increasing control in more of their segmental movements. Um, and I think a, a lot of them tend to be over braces. So there's a lot of sort of work that we do in terms of just um, movement patterning around unlocking a little bit of that over bracing and, and that compression through their joints. Yeah. So so just just explain over bracing a bit more. Yeah, Let, let's think, just sort of talk about that because that'll lead into you know how your unique approach you know gets applied in the clinic, and we'll, we can all learn a lot from that. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Like, I think if you think about their training, like a lot of it is um, strong force that that creates. And if we think about the heavy gym work that particularly the AFL players do, there's a lot of sort of global co-contraction that has to happen through their abdominals, through their back, through their, through their glutes. But I think when we look at that, it tends to be fairly linear single plane movement that happens. And so they then apply that to a lot of the rotational and change of direction work that they do. Um, so what I really work with them on is, unlocking that need to create global co-contraction for stability and working a little bit more on the deeper muscles to create stability so that they then increase freedom of movement. Um, and particularly, I think, with their change of direction and their rotational work, that just tends to decompress a bit through their through their spine and also through their hip and groin. So potentially most people come to see you with, uh, with pain or, yeah. or do you see people more from a preventative performance of um, perspective it depends a little bit of both I think predominantly what I see is a lot of lower back pain or a lot of anterior hip pain um with those type of athletes once they've gotten over that then they tend to come more for a maintenance for maintenance but initially that, that they're the two main conditions that we tend to see yeah and so there's real there's there's a bit of crossover there in between coaching and performance and rehab mm. and um, general movement education, isn't there? If you think about the fluency you need to perform a sport and you know, maximum effort, but also you know with control and nuance. Yeah, um, correct. And then on the other side of it is is things like as you're saying, mult, you know, uni plane up, um, compound lifting and things. So it's, it's sort of complementary to what they're doing with their training and. Uh, so what sort of outcomes do you, what sort of progress do you see in general with people who have sort of, and I can identify as a, um, what, what did you um, say before, an overbracer? Yeah, I'm sorry, I can, I've got those patterns of movement. Um, if you were seeing me 
as a patient. I'm a bit of an overbracer. I tend to hold my breath when I lift, yeah. which is really yeah. good, and I coach myself out of that. What sort of cues and tips would you give me to to move from being this, this overbracer to being a bit more fluent but still strong and powerful? Yeah, it's interesting. I think what, what I tend to see a lot with those athletes is that they – um, don't move very well through their hips. So they maybe hold themselves in like quite an extended position. They tend to have like quite a, a large translation of force forward. They tend to be, um, to move through their lumbar spine a lot, but then not be great at, at moving through their hips in a hip hinge manner. So we do a lot of work on just sort of retraining that. We do a lot of work on, um, retraining hip flexion without then lumbar um, lumbar flexion as well. So a little bit more of sort of like lower level, higher repetition, um, controlled movements through moving through their hips. Um, we do a little bit, I tend to do a lot of oblique work with them, um, like oblique rotational work with them. Um, because I think that that really works on their um, rotational control through their trunk without that co-contaminant um, compression through their lumbar spine. Um, everyone's a little bit different, but they're, they're sort of the main things that, that we tend to work on. Um, lots of deep hip external rotator work, so some four-point kneel, hip external rotations, some standing external rotations. Um, so a little bit of foot control in in the chain um of hip rotation as well mm, interesting so there's a lot of observation of movement isn't mm, there that goes yes. on, and a lot yeah. of repetitive movement and Absolutely. a lot of education and feedback to the person a lot of use of and mirrors i'm assuming so you, you watch yourself can you see how you're moving in this direction what if you do it this way and that way yeah definitely and i think it's um it's an interesting thing because I think, you know, obviously elite sport and our general life is quite dynamic. So we don't have the time to really think about how we're moving. We're just moving and we're trying to get through. And so Pilates sort of gives you that opportunity to sit back and think, actually, how am I moving? And then can I, can I make that a bit more efficient or can I make that sort of a bit smoother? And then can I translate that once I know how to do that in a more controlled environment with the mirrors, with the machines, with feedback from the practitioner, can I then translate that into my training or my running or my day-to-day life so that I then carry through those movement patterns into sort of my, my more functional patterns. Mm. And going from say over bracing to, mm. to, to um, more fluent, but also a, um, Forgetting about, you know, the yeah, correct. Oh, sorry, yeah, I've lost my words. I'm thinking about the more the upper cortical sort of driven, thinking about everything and and trying to get it perfect through to that becomes a part of your natural movement. Yeah, correct. You almost move from that part practice to integration into into your normal performance um, movement. And I think too, if we think about if we think about that over bracing person that we see, if we're really locking down, we're actually losing that transition of power as I'm rotating, if I'm braced, whereas if I'm fluid and free, I can wind myself up further. I can create more power as I rotate. It's applicable to throwing athletes. It's applicable, it's applicable to all sorts of athletes. Mm. Now I can really feel that as someone who's, so let's take throwing for an example. Um, my son Thomas is 13. He's playing cricket. He can throw the ball further than me. And yeah. he's got a good throw, but but also he's got he's got the, his mum's range of motion through his joints, and he's developing my strength. Um, so so what, what role does just plain old range of motion people with capsular and, and other joint structure related stiffness and perhaps bony morphology that just doesn't let them doesn't let their hips or shoulders get into those positions to begin with? So what role does range of motion play in all of this? Yeah, I think range of motion definitely plays a, a big role, and I think particularly if we're thinking about, for example, shoulders, if you can wind your shoulder up further, you're, you're going to be able to create more torque as you get your follow through. It's interesting with that though. I think you have to think, is it is that something that we can fix or is, is that a bony morphology that we're not going to be able to fix? For example, I think if we think about hips, you know, there's a, a large morphology in through the shape of acetabulums, in, through the shape of femoral heads, there's cam lesions that as much as we can work on on range of motion, that's not going to change. So I think then we have to think about, well, can we change 
what's happening above or happening below to increase as much as we can the range there. So, for example, for the thrower, can we change their thoracic rotation? Can we change their their internal and external rotation of the hips? So as we move, can so can we move from the hips and the thoracic to increase the range of rotation to then create more torque through the trunk rather than just from the shoulder? Um, or can we unlock through their, through their hips? So can we create more changes in their pelvic position for the hip um, for the hip patients that might have reduced um, range of motion so that then we can get more, more movement through the pelvis and through the lumbar spine, which can compensate for the lack of internal or external rotation that's, that's fixed at the hip. So for some of you everyday athletes and everyday people who don't have a coach and don't have elite sports science and, and everything going on, you, there's a bit of a crossover there with coaching. If you were yeah. my, if I was in the clinic with you right now and you were helping me with my shoulder and trying to get me throw, to throw as far as my 13-year-old son can, you would be working a lot of my thoracic rotation and and also the, just the technique of hip, yeah. hip and shoulder rotation summation of forces and you could improve my my throw without changing my shoulder Correct. range of motion which changing. hasn't changed in 44 years and probably won't probably will just keep getting worse but we could improve performance and take strain out of the shoulder yeah exactly yeah. exactly and i think that's where like sort of even just the opportunity that you have when people come for clinical Pilates, like I would see them for an hour once or or twice a week, whereas a physio patient you might see for 20 or 30 minutes once a week for four weeks and then maybe only every fortnight or every three weeks. So the amount of time you have to work on those on those things and to provide feedback and to sort of like consistently um, reevaluate and change and improve gives you the ability, I think, to really work on, on those patterns and and improve the performance in real time, which is also actually really a really nice opportunity for me as the practitioner. Mm. So they're really good principles. Tell us more because um, I'm learning a lot from this and I'm sure others are as well. Um, let's use, You mentioned low back pain and an- anterior hip pain as two really yeah. prevalent conditions you see mm-hmm. in those um I guess in the everyday population, but more so, I think with anterior hip pain, more so in running athletes and yeah, contact sports, yeah, the Australian football players. So take us through managing someone who comes in with pain and and maybe a case study someone has, say, well, first of all, which side would – is one side more common than the other? Is it related to leg dominance? Let's choose a side for this person's hip pain. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think in – it can be different in runners. It, it can be it can be either, and it depends maybe on their underlying hip pathology a little bit. I think um, definitely in like in cricket players, we tend to see it in their leg that's opposite to their bowling arm, just because of the way they plant their foot and and rotate. In football players, I feel like I tend to see it in their standing leg. I think a lot of the football players plant their standing leg and then as they swing their kicking leg through, they tend to extend a little bit and then anteriorly translate their weight. So even though sometimes we think it can be their kicking leg, I think probably predominantly I see it in their standing leg a little bit more. Um, Interesting. Very sport-specific. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think in runners it tends to be a little bit more bilateral, but in those other sports players, I think we do just dependent on on the activity, see it slightly slightly differently. Hmm. Let's make um, our player a, a football player, and it's it's on their stance leg. They they, mm-hmm. they do more kicking on the right leg, so it's and they're getting anterior hip pain on their left leg. They mm-hmm. come in, they're not sure about it. Obviously, there's an education and, and diagnostic um, component to it, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more interested in the rehab and your use of movement and yeah. the integration of what you know from Pilates into the rehab. Yeah. So, talk me through some of the the things you might be doing with me or this this case study. Person. Yeah, this person. it's interesting. So I feel like this is um, generally, and I don't, I don't want to put everyone in this category, but generally for that type of player, what we see is they're very quad dominant. They're overactive often through their um, TFL. They tend to be quite um, tight and stiff through the front of their hips and um, they just generally, I feel like, move poorly through through their hips. So they do a lot of lumbar extension. They do um, a lot of sort of 
anterior pelvic tilt or they do a lot of posterior pelvic tilt, but they don't tend to sort of hold themselves forward in the middle. Um, So for those patients, I tend to start off with um, just trying to work a little bit more on their lower glute max and their deep hip rotators. So um, we do a lot of like low glute bridges, so just very small um, neutral pelvic position bridges to activate through the lower glute max, but then to also just try and deactivate a little bit of their TFL and their um, rec fem. I think a lot of them, if we give them high bridges, they tend to come into a lot of lumbar extension and they tend to hold themselves up through the anterior structures of their hip. Um, I tend to do a lot of sort of like four-point knee rock backs with them. So what we try and do is keep their pelvis neutral and then get them to hip hinge back and then to create that forward translation back to their start position from the lower part of the glute. So we're reducing that overactivity through the superior part of their glutes, which tends to push them forward and often gives them a little bit of compression in through their lower back. Um, And then... I would probably get them doing some um, like sideline work on the reformer. So we often will put them with their foot sideline on the bar and just get them to do a little press in and out. And again, what I like to do for that is to see if they can organize their pelvis and their hips so that they do their hip flexion and extension through the hip and the pelvis can stay in a neutral position. So they start to take out that anterior posterior pelvic tilt um, and particularly the posterior pelvic tilt as they're coming into hip flexion. So I think what we see is as they kick, as they come into hip flexion on this side, they tend to posteriorly pelvic tilt and drive the pelvis forward into the front of the hip. Um, So we work a lot on down regulating those anterior structures and starting to just create some stability through the pelvis as they move through there. Um, and then from there, we often do a lot of running retraining work standing um, on the side of the reformer, so in a scooter position. So they have one foot on the floor and one foot on the back of the reformer, and so they almost replicate their running position. And I think here we can work really nicely on just the position of their standing leg. So um, can we get them into a good position where they're holding themselves through the lower part of their glute max? Um and I think a big thing with a lot of the athletes in this position is because they are quite quad dominant, they tend to sit quite low, but what they do is they sit, sit with their pelvis quite far behind the back of their heel. So then to try and then bring themselves forward, if we're thinking about a running position, they're then using their quad to translate the pelvis over the foot to then translate themselves forward. So if we can work with them to keep um, almost their hip directly over their heel, a bit like we would encourage with foot strike, that the weight stays a little bit more forward on the toes and the pelvis stays a little bit more forward. We're not then reinforcing the front of the quad and the anterior hip structures to create the forward momentum. They can use their glute to create forward momentum. Um, and I think that then again is, is repatting them out of that sort of overactivity and that um, use of the anterior part of their hip. There's a lot in that that's, that's really specific <laughs> and people can take those positions and, and develop exercises in them and that, those principles Definitely. as well. That, let, let's go back a step to some of the theory there that, that's um, fundamental. And we may hear my dogs barking in the background and that's just a bit of colour and, and fun in the background. That's a real, I'm a real person. Um, <laughs> forward momentum with the quads. I, th- I think we need to sort of define and explain these a bit. Quad dominance and, and, and this idea that the and the knee extends is extend the knee. Okay, rec, the femoris crosses the anterior hip and you flex the hip. But the, the fact that muscles can work in a closed kinetic chain in different ways and, you know, that can have an effect on the trunk. You talked about the forward momentum. Let's explore that a little bit because mm. if we're talking about advanced sort of movement re-education and that coaching, that, that, that area of physio, then we really need to understand those biomechanics to know what you're talking about. So what is a quad-dominant runner look like in the observation yeah i think um what i tend to see is in those athletes is they like to sit down quite low so they maybe like 
um, when they're landing, they're, they're, not, they're coming into quite a lot of knee and hip flexion. So they're landing quite low in their knee and their hip and then they're having to pull themselves out of that low landing to then translate themselves forward sure. rather than staying a little bit stiffer in the leg, which means that they can then be light on their foot, they have a short contact time and then they can translate mm. themselves forward again. And, and stiffness, again, we're talking the biomechanical definition of stiffness. Yes. Which is that, yes. cha- that force and the change of range of motion. So range sti- of motion. A stiffer running, describe a stiffer running style, for so, like so, a sprinter on the track versus someone yeah. slopping along on, the, um, on their Sunday run when no one's watching. Yeah, so stiffer running, not someone that's stiff in their muscles, but but someone that, that has less um, – less flexion in their knee, less flexion in their hip at their contact time. So they're not losing momentum and energy coming down into hip and knee flexion and then raising out. They they stay fairly straight the whole way through their run. So they're really just getting a ground reaction force from their ankle, from their foot to to um, propel themselves forward. Mm. And you would probably video clients as well and show them that and, and show yeah. them the before and after the changes as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So we're not losing that energy into the ground. We're keeping it in our body to allow ourselves to translate faster and and lighter too, Mm. which reduces, again, compression through the joints. It reduces compression through the knee. It reduces compression through the hip and the lower back Mm. as well. So so terms like quad dominance, in a way they're a description of the mechanism of what may be causing it. The observation is what you just said, is the observation of someone who is – hitting the ground the point of ground contact has more hip and knee flexion tends to stay there longer and probably has a longer ground contact time and they're all things you can observe you can you can do them biomechanically and and put numbers to them you can record them and use them as education and say here look this is how you're running this is how you're running now or and and so when we talk to each other we often say things like that um overactive muscles and and quad dominance and things but sometimes i think it's nice to unpack them a bit and say where did you get that um, where, did, where did the name come from? Definitely. And I think that's, you're right. Like I think sometimes what's colloquially used is just is just a habit. And so it is good to think about, well, what do we actually mean by that? And is it what oh, the people at the football club, you know, down the road that are there just on a Saturday to play their footy? Is that what they've been heard or told? Or what do we actually as health professionals actually meaning by it? Yeah. And so you had some really nice tips about, the specific position, for example, in the bridge. And if you're going, you know, it's obviously we want to encourage full range of motion in exercises mm-hmm. to a point where, but if you if you have a specific aim, which was to, you know, to strengthen muscles that aren't as strong, you mentioned you know, the hip rotators and glutes, then that there may be modifications of the standard full bridge that you can do with people. So it's sort of Definitely. worth thinking a bit. You know, just a side question here, um, talking to our students and new grads and you're, you're highly experienced um, so let's let's talk to our less experienced listeners. And how did you get all this knowledge? You didn't come out of uni. You were a Monash grad, right? I was a Monash that's grad. Right. Yes, that's I right. was a Monash grad. <laughs> okay, so you didn't come out of Monash. Yeah, that's right. Um, you didn't come out of Monash um, with all of this knowledge. And no one does. No one comes out of their undergraduate or postgrad degree with any of this mm. stuff. So uh, I'm, I'm interested in you know, how did you, you build up your repertoire of this knowledge? Do you... Do you um, keep an exercise diary or more a contemporary approach like a uh, where do you store all your exercises are they all in your mind or you know how do you share them with patients yeah. for example yeah I know it's interesting and I think that's the perennial challenge for physios isn't it is like how do I find good quality exercises and how do I share them in in an appropriate format with patients um I feel like for me, I I originally did a Pilates course, so I think that was that was quite helpful as a, a as a foundation. And then I think in terms of exercises, most of mine have come from experimenting. So, um, like I've also done strength and conditioning course. So I think having the Pilates and the strength and conditioning course gives you a base for you know those those more normal exercises or like a base of, of different types of exercises and compound movements that you can provide. And then I think um, just learning from colleagues, like surrounding yourself with people that are also interested in um, exercise. I think surrounding yourself with colleagues that are doing interesting things and um, working in different ways is really good. So the more exposure you can get to different approaches, I think it, it just gives you 
um, a bigger toolbox to then reach reach through when you've got patients in front of you. I think a lot of my exercises have come from a bit of reverse engineering in terms of identifying a problem with the patient and then trying to reverse engineer what I want out of them. Mm, and less dogmatic than having those principles and I'm a squats and deadlift guy and everyone's doing them. You're very individualised. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And I think it's like you're not going to, like for different patients need different things. Like for example, for my elite patients, I don't need to give them strengthening exercises because they've got amazing strength and conditioning coaches. They've got amazing physios. They're getting, they're, they're as strong as they can possibly be. Like that's not really my role for them. My role for them is more control or like um, specific activation. But for my physio patients that come in that maybe have patellofemoral pain, actually then what I do need is to give them strengthening exercises. So you have to really have a quite a broad repertoire because you never know who's going to come in and, and what actually they're going to need. So I think keeping keeping an open mind is going to make you more successful with, with a range of patients. Um, in terms of providing exercises to patients, I will sometimes video them on their phone just so that they can see themselves doing it and they can hear my cueing. And again, I can make it really specific to them. So whatever specific nuance we've worked out works for them or whatever specific cue we've worked out works for them, we can do that in the video. Um, we at the clinic do have a bank of um, exercises that we commonly prescribe um, with photos that we um, will we'll send to patients so we can edit their reps and their sets and and, and send to patients. Um, so sometimes I'll also do that just depending on how tech savvy they are and how much time we have in the session um, to do things like that also. Mm. So you've really, the, the, the short answer to my question is post-grad training in, and lots of experience yeah, and lots so. of working in the field. I if you're so. a student who, who and what's the, the physio courses are, it's an academic course, right? So you they're open to anybody from all works, walks of life and and so you don't have to there's no requirement that you yourself are have a background in going to the gym yes in any exactly particular sport and anything and there's yeah. more to physiotherapy than than sport you might end up in other fields we acknowledge that exercise and knowledge of exercise is really helpful and it's something that you need for your own health but we do get a lot of students who have never been in the gym and it's it's a tough starting point for them to sort of understand the principles of exercise and then go apply it in the clinic. So so for you, um, someone who is fit and healthy and does all the exercise yourself, there's an advantage. But you did a Pilates course. Believe it or not, I, I've done a Pilates course or two many years ago. You may not believe that. I know, I believe uh, it. Like, I do. In a previous <laughs> life, I would, um, I would go to, I would um, defer to you for knowledge of Pilates or Susanna, not me, but um, you've got a, a general appreciation of it. And then combining that with a strength and conditioning course. So if if you're going in that sports direction, and of course you've done a sports masters as well. So post-grad education plays a big role in it and then who you're working with. Yes. And and tailoring it to the patient. Just to I try to so. summarize that. Yeah, I think so. And I think if you're interested in working private practice or sport and you haven't had a lot of experience in the gym or in exercise, it's it's probably worth just going and doing some yourself. So going yeah. and joining a gym and, and getting a personal trainer or someone to, to write a program for you and, and having some experience. So then, you know, even if people are coming in and saying, oh, this is my program, this is what I want to get back to, that you've, you've got a little bit of an understanding about that too. I think having doing it yourself, it, it just gives you a bit more of an understanding about, about what people are doing and what the demands are also. Yeah. And the other thing that really helps you learn things is teaching. Definitely. And so you've mentioned your teaching with Sports Map, and I'm sure that you you uh, you do teaching within your clinic with colleagues and and students, but you also teach with us at Monash. So let's talk about anatomy teaching. Um, so anatomy is um, a vast topic, and we have a really detailed, specific anatomy curriculum in most physio programs. So physio students will come out knowing, well, they should if they were paying attention, um, knowing a really detailed musculoskeletal anatomy. Um, what do you? What drew you to working in in education? What What do you like about anatomy? 
Um, Why yeah. do you keep coming back each year? You're coming back in a couple of weeks to start again. I am. For how many years? Six, oh, six years in a row or six, more? Seven years in a row now. Hey. I think everyone beautiful. must be like, oh, God, her again. Um, she's back. <laughs> she's back. Fantastic. Um, no, I actually, I love anatomy and I think every year I probably get more and more appreciative of of anatomy understanding and I think initially in your undergrad it is quite an overwhelming topic because there's a lot of new words and there's a lot of new information and um, I think I probably didn't even really realise until I started practising how actually important and how much it actually underpins your physiotherapy practice and the more I get into my um, clinical practice the more I really realise that if you can understand your anatomy you're palpation, your diagnosis, your ability to clinically reason when people are coming in and describing symptoms and through your physical assessment, that it really helps you pinpoint exactly what's going on with people. And um, I think really as physios, like that should be our specialty in is in almost having this x-ray vision and being able to look and palpate someone and assess them and know what's happening underneath their skin so that we can be the most specific clinicians that we possibly can be mm. a um, my favorite example is the ottawa ankle rules and palpation for differential diagnosis Absolutely. for ankle injuries and just being just knowing when you're from lots of practice and careful palpation just knowing when you're on the perineal tendons versus the ligament versus bone and you can really apply that um yeah that sensation of of when you're of tenderness for the patient when you're on the bone and, and you're watching their face and that reaction which can help you detect a fracture. And this is all example of applied anatomy. Definitely. What are some other ones? What are some other what examples in the clinic where you've taken your anatomical knowledge from your postgrad training and undergrad and all the teaching you've been doing and, and that's been really helpful? Well, I think the other one is even just treating. Like if you're treating um, an ankle even, like in someone that hasn't had a fracture, but if you're treating an ankle and you are on the, on the tail ahead and you're mobilising the tail ahead versus if you're up in the talocrural joint, like the ability to change that person's ankle range, if you're very specific with your um with your mobilisations or being able to put them in the right position and actually mobilize their subtalar joint at the right angle so like even just knowing the way the angle that the subtalar joint moves at and being able to mobilize them in that angle versus just kind of like banging away where you're a bit off center like patients will will know the difference or um, mobilizing the cervical spine, for example. So knowing, uh, am I on the facet joints to mobilize the facets? Am I mobilizing them in the correct plane? Um, number one, their pain is less when you're mobilizing them. You're not sort of out here on the transverse process, like right in where there's a lot of soft tissue um, and your treatment is much more effective. So I think being able to sort of visualize that the patient feels better, you get a better result. Um in a faster period of time and you're not sort of just being like, I'm just going to release everything I possibly can and hope for the best, which I think as a new grad, sometimes you do, you're like, I don't really know what's happening here. So I'm just going to try and release everything and I'll give it my best go. Whereas if you know what's going on under the surface, you can really be specific with what's happening and that ha helps the clinical reasoning and your outcomes. Mm. There's also communication with medical professionals and other professionals mm, and, and investigations as well. And just that, just having that, um, that, that knowledge when you're talking to the surgeon or the doctor, for example, about something you refer, for example, you've referred someone to them with a history of trauma or, or follow-up from surgery, just, just the, the knowledge of anatomy underpinning what you're doing in rehab. I think I agree. That, that's really important. Um, so what about learning anatomy? We're always learning an relearning things and every time I say this to the students they laugh uh, maybe because it's they, they're not expecting it or maybe because it's relatable in in some way but I always say so you'll learn all this anatomy really well and pass your test and then you'll forget it all <laughs> and then you'll come back and relearn it again and then you'll forget it all and it's it's probably laughing because it's, it's not that extreme you don't forget all of it but you're continually reinforcing and layering it up and learning more yeah absolutely. across your career yeah so what, what tips do you have? What, what things have worked well for your groups in terms of learning anatomy, tips and tricks, and um, how do you teach it so well? 
I think what's really important is to not just rote learn it. I think, you know, our textbooks yeah. have got lots of beautiful tables that have got the origin and the insertion and the the name and the nerve supply. And I think sometimes students just try and um, rote learn the tables. But I think really with anatomy, it's very, like we, it's very applicable to our body. So I think if you can look at something, if you can think about, well, where is it attaching? Well, where is it going to? What's the direction of the muscle fibers? If that's the direction of the muscle fibers, is that's where it's attaching to? What do I think it, it's going to create? Like what movement is creating? And, um, you know, learning patterns, I think sometimes we look at those tables and it can be very overwhelming to think, okay, well, what's the nerve? This nerve is here, this nerve is here. But then if we start to then actually look at the pathways of the nerves or pathways of the vessels through the body, I think it makes a lot more sense. And I think sometimes we get a little bit lost in just words and we forget that anatomy is a very visual medium. And so it's really important that we actually use the visual resources that we have. Mm. And this is where we take our hats off and bow in respect to our um, international students who are learning anatomy in the second or third preferred language. Absolutely. Um, and, and anatomy, it's, as you mentioned, is all Greek and Latin, and it's, it is itself a language. And I like what you said there. You can get lost in the words. It can happen to any of us. And not thinking about the patterns of what you're seeing here. Yeah, yeah. And how are you going to apply it as well? I think that's right. I think if you if you remember that it's a 3D, it's it, anatomy is 3D. And so if we can look at it and see the way that things are attaching and where they are in relation to other structures, it then helps us apply it to um, our exercises. So it then helps us understand how is it moving isometrically, eccentrically, concentrically, um, how are we... How are we affecting the agonist and the antagonist? Because I know what's running in the same plane. I know, you know, what's sitting where, what's sitting deep, what's sitting superficial. Like, And then that also helps with our assessment, but also helps with our exercise and our rehab strategies. And I think that's like, that is the key too, is, is knowing am I being specific with what I'm giving people and the exercise I'm giving them? Is it actually targeting what I think? And I know that because I know where the muscles are and I, I know what their job is in relation to everything else. Yeah. And you mentioned sort of having 3d mm -hmm. vision or not really, but it, it perceived that you can, you can really think about what's underneath the skin and, and the movements that are occurring and the structures that are there. And, um, that application to diagnosis and rehab is really important. So, Definitely. And I think what other, anything else? Yeah, sorry. sorry about I, was to say, I think we're lucky now. Like, there's so many great resources out there. There's a lot of online um, resources like Teach Me Anatomy and Complete Anatomy. There's a lot of online resources where we can, you know, move models around. We can take layers on, we can put layers off. Like, there's a, there's a lot of different things that we can use at home. And then, obviously, in at uni, there's our cadavers, which are probably such an underappreciated resource that we have, but are an amazing way for us to be able to pick things up, move them around, move joints, look at different layers, look at the deep layers, look at the more superficial layers, look at the quality of the tissues and how that might affect um, different things like what is the structure, what's the what does a ligament look like compared to a tendon, and how do you how do we think that changes changes their roles? And I think. Sometimes it can be a little bit confronting initially, but if we can get past that, they're the most amazing resource we can possibly use. Mm. I think sometimes when you're coming, you're approaching your anatomy as a novice learner, mm. you mentioned it can be overwhelming and it's vast and there's a lot to cover. And then the, the problem of trying to rote learn things and sometimes just getting lost in trying to remember the names of things. Uh, it's important to step back and really try to appreciate the structure and function and the, you know, the texture of things and how they fit together and the bigger picture of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you mentioned that all the free and, and subscription services for anatomy that never existed when we were young and training. They certainly didn't back in the <clears throat> 1990s <laughs> when I was going through. And, and I, sometimes it's just a funny, funny thing to re just reflect on. Sometimes with the students, I they're so used to having amazing stuff that I'll say, I'll, I'll show them a 3D model and, and we'll go and start to explore it. And some are fascinated, but others are just, oh, yeah, yeah. that's fine. They take it. 
take for granted. We all take things. We never had this. And we know some of the people who have invented these and, and come up with this technology and how much effort went into it and um, and how technical it was to create and then involved with Joe's involved in getting the licenses so the students can get access to it and it's there and they've got it. Uh, some, of course, spending extra hours and many hours diving into it and others just taking a passing interest in it. So I, I guess when you're young as well, it takes time to appreciate that and realise how lucky you are and what you've got. But um, it's just as an aside, if you're a yeah. student listening to this, just um, just just dive into all those resources and really play around with them. Be curious, like Abby's trying to encourage you to be. It's um, it's something that you won't stop doing either. That's right. If you, yeah, as your career goes on, I still go back if I if I have a patient. I'm like, oh, I don't really know what's going on. Or every time I prepare for my classes, I I feel like I learn something new, or I get more of an appreciation oh, yeah. for for just the nuances that we see. And I think like, you know, it's, it's a continuous thing. And if you, it's like your physio skills, like you never want to stop learning new skills and you never want to stop refining your skills. And I think anatomy is exactly the same. And I think the other thing for anatomy is like, don't be afraid to ask questions. Like I still ask Joe and Luke questions all the time um, to double, you know, to check what's this or what's that, or what do we think about this? And I think sometimes in anatomy, like, it is it is a confusing thing, and so when you when you come into your practicals, there are, like there should be a lot of questions that you that you have, um, and I think people sometimes maybe a bit reserved. They don't want to seem like they don't know, but I think like there's never any judgment around that. Like we expect you to have questions, and I sometimes am a bit sus when people don't and they think they know it all because I'm like I don't think you can know it all just yet. So I think always ask questions and never stop asking questions. Because that's the way that you learn. Mm. Well, it's like counting all the stars in the sky. That's Correct. a bit of a red flag that you, uh, you're you not invested in the, the process of learning if you think, oh, well, I know it all. Um, it's never – no one likes a smart ass, as the <laughs> saying goes, but it's a, it's, a, it's a process of learning. And so asking questions is really important. And even if you already feel like you know the answer as well. Yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. Because sometimes someone will bring something else up and you're like, oh, I didn't think about it like that. And then, yeah, of course, if I think about it like that, what about this? And it, it just it just brings that sort of like that um, conscious inquiry into it, I think, which is really mm. important. Which is what we're doing now. I'm asking you a range of questions. I've got my own thoughts and opinions on. And you just you step back and you put it aside and you don't have to know everything and take a curiosity in it. You ask questions and you get other people's perspectives. I think, I think that's really important, particularly if you, you feel like you're being assessed in university, and which you are. But that's really just to tick you off as being competent. Mm-hmm. It's not the, it's not everything. And I did a whole episode on this with Jody, uh, the purpose of an assessment. But it's just you know the main ninety percent of the time you're there, you should be learning and be curious and asking questions. And well, is there any is there such thing as a dumb question? There probably is. I think normally, normally, normally not though. I, normally I feel not. like yeah. what what most people think is a dumb question is is not. And I think if you're thinking it, a lot of other people in the class are probably also thinking the same question. So being brave to sort of voice that to voice that I think is is really important. And it's a skill I think that will will bode you well across your whole your whole career. Like it it applies in anatomy. It also applies in um, practical skills. It also applies in case-based learning. I think if you're just consciously inquiring all of the time, you're mm-hmm. going to become a better therapist. And the point of your undergraduate education is to be come out as good a therapist or as good a physio as you can. So the more questions you ask in your physio undergrad degree, the better new grad you're going to be. And then the if you continue that, the better senior physio you're going to be. Um, yeah, and I think if you think about it, if I even think about a lot of senior physios or well-respected physios that I know, they they ask a lot of questions all the time and they always, mm. whenever I go to courses, people always say, I learned this from so-and-so, I learned this from so-and-so. Like there's, they've always been those people that are, are looking for answers. Mm. And it's also how you frame the question. If you're asking a question that highlights how little preparation you've done yeah. and <laughs> and really it is something that you, you're supposed to have looked up yourself and you know, that, that's not the best question but the best question can be look here's what i've been working on and the questions i have about this are are as follows or i would like to know more about this i'd like to put this what's what's the context why is this important yeah so those deeper level questions are really important and and with your educators 
it's just people like Abby and myself, and we want to talk to you about this and we want to help you. So, yeah, really support that. Encourage you to ask lots of questions when you're not just in university but across your career. Absolutely. What other skills are really important for a physiotherapist? So we've talked about lifelong learning and asking questions and obviously the the specific skills in in movement analysis and you've been talking about in the first half of the conversation. Mm -hmm. So foundational knowledge and skills for a physio. What do you reckon? Um, I think listening is a really foundational skill for physiotherapists, listening to your patients. I think you've got to listen for the things they're saying, but maybe also the things they're not always saying. Um, ah, yeah. I think it, patients are all different and sometimes they're people pleasers. So if they're coming back to see you and they're wanting to report that they've been doing all their exercises and I just I just think listening to listening to what are they actually doing and how are they actually being affected by what's going on is really important. Um, yeah. So for the for the emotional side, but then also really listening to the mechanism mechanism of their injury. So really uh, like yeah. listening to well nutting down their subjective information, I think is really important because that helps you really create a, a good plan for the rest of your objective assessment, for your treatment. Um, and then listening to how is it affecting them in their work, how is it affecting them in their life? Is there stress in their life? Is there other factors that are going to affect maybe their their recovery and their rehabilitation and being empathetic to those to those things also. There's a quote I don't know who to, to attribute it to, but it's listen to the patient. They're telling you what's wrong with them. Honestly, like I think if you do that, like they will give you a lot of a lot of cues. And I think sometimes it's hard because initially when you when you start seeing patients maybe you have 20 or 30 minutes and it seems like it goes really quickly and I think a lot of new grads feel a lot of pressure to provide a service so they want to get them in there they get them on the treatment bed they're like starting their assessment they're starting their treatment but I think if you spend a lot of time initially listening and nutting out with the patient the history and what's going on the other stuff is faster and more targeted and you you do end up getting a better result and you don't sort of end up in this bit of a soupy mix of they think that you know exactly what's going on, you haven't actually listened and you haven't actually understood what's happening. So Mm. I definitely think listening and actually listening, not just asking the questions, but actually listening to the responses and, and using those responses is really important. Yeah, let's try to think of an example of where listening could lead you to a bit more of a streamlined approach and actually save your time. So what the you know, if you were asking the person what is it you're tra- or trying to figure out what they really want. Yeah, I think that's, coming in, I yeah. think that's it too. Like what what are your goals is like seems like a bit of an arbitrary um an arbitrary thing. But I think it is really important because how satisfied a patient is doesn't necessarily correlate to you having the best giving them the best treatment, it's them feeling like they've received what they wanted. So, you know, if they come in and you've given them a half an hour exercise program that they can take home and do every single day and they're, you know, a mom or a dad of three kids that works full time, (laughs) has 10 minutes to themselves at the end of the day, like they're not going to do that. And they're going to And he's already doing an exercise program that they haven't told you about or you haven't listened to. Yeah. Yeah, They go to the gym, you know, three times a week and, and do an exercise program and you've given them all this that they don't have time to do or they don't have the equipment to do or is not really what they wanted. They wanted some advice because they're going on holidays in two weeks and they wanted to know what they need to do to make sure they can go on holidays. Like I, I think the mismatch for that is really um, is really sort of common and, and something I think that that can make you un, unsuccessful in your in your career. So I think really nutting out what what is actually the problem and what do they perceive as the problem? Like I think sometimes some people might come in and they've got really bad knee pain and they haven't been able to, you know, walk more than three or 400 metres for three weeks. And so you're like, right, we're going to get you on a walking program and you're doing this and this and this, but really the main thing that they want to be able to do is like kneel in the garden and, and do their gardening for 20 minutes every day. So you're giving them this big walking pattern. It doesn't actually achieve their goal. The mismatch then means that they're not on board with the treatment and and so you either lose them as a patient or they're, they're very sort of like 
combative or, you know, it's, it's a bit more of a, a difficult situation. Mm, which might be in the territory of what you said before, which was what they're not saying. Yeah, or the, correct. Or their, their demeanour, for example. Yeah, So what correct. are some questions to help sort of tease out what people really want and what they're, what yeah. they're going for? So w- what do you want to get out of coming to see me? What, yeah. what you, obviously, what are your goals? But, you know, a bit of guesswork. It, it seems to me a really important goal of yours is getting back to that garden. Or I, I know that you've told me that you've got a grand final in two weeks. Is that the big goal? Some suggestions there. What other um, what other things do you say to try to get to the bottom of what a person wants? Yeah, I think that those are really good ones. Like I think things saying like, is this your goal or, or like, is this the main thing that you really want to work on? Or tell me, what do you think are the top like three things that, that are giving you the most trouble and what do you feel like you need to, to be able to get back to first? And what maybe do you feel like, you know, we can work on a little bit later on? Like what's what's the main thing that you really, you really feel like is, is bothering you or is the thing that you want to address. And I think that comes into sometimes when people come in and they're like, oh, so I've come to see you because my knee's really sore. Also my shoulder gets really sore and sometimes I get a headache and sometimes they come in and tell you that they've got four different things going on. And and again, I think you can you can say to that patient, oh, great. Um, how about we, we only have time for one to really look well at one thing today. Like what do you really want to look at? At today and then we can get to the other things later because I think and I definitely did this as a new grad is I wanted to be like okay I'm going to fix everything in 20 minutes go and so again you sort of like trying to do a half job of everything and they walk out and they're like I'm not really sure what I'm meant to be doing um so I think just really clarifying with them um and at the end of the session I'll often say is there anything else that we didn't that we didn't get to today that you know, that you want to discuss next time or is there is there anything like is that really clear? Is that does that seem to be like what what we were looking for today? Just so um again they know that that you're on their path with them. Mm. So it starts with listening. Definitely. Yeah. Which is a as a subcategory of the more general answer of communication skills. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to communication, verbal, nonverbal and what you say and what you don't say and yeah, everything definitely. else, but that just a, just starting with listening. I think so. Kind of important. I think so. And I think then, you know, the rest of the communication comes, but I think a lot of what people want to know is that they want to feel like they've been listened to. And Oh, yeah. And particularly for physio, I think, you know, people go to the GP and just because of the nature of the time that the GP has to spend with them, I think a lot of people come away with a referral to physio or a script and don't necessarily feel like they've been listened to. And I think a lot of frustration comes from that. So if you can be that person that listens and really addresses what their what their problem is or what they're seeking, then I think you've already sort of won them yeah. over halfway. Yeah, yeah. GP, general practitioner in Australia and other countries, family physician maybe if you're in the States. Yes, so. yeah. Um, family doctor. Um, so... I've had some really good experiences with uh, with doctors with those short consultations where they have got right to the point and I've really felt like I've been listened to and it really hasn't taken 20 minutes. I think there were 10-minute appointments and I wasn't felt – I didn't feel like I hadn't been listened to and uh, and I think a lot of that came from the skill of listening and, and, and getting on with the thing that I, I came in there for. Yeah, definitely. Uh, doctors have a different way of approaching the, the consultation, different training from – physios and other health professionals and they do try to get straight to the point early on as well <laughs> yes. which probably is something that also physios could could take maybe a little leaf out i think sometimes we can be a bit like lovely and and um, that's good but that it can also be time consuming so i think being just really direct with your questioning is really important also but, but if i take the, the the last doctor i saw as an example um I didn't feel I had missed out on any interpersonal yeah. skills or the old term was bedside manner or anything. It was just that they asked me questions about why I was here and what I need. I think that there's something in that, which is what you've really raised there. So I think that's a great answer. Um, yeah, definitely. And I think you're right. I think it's about feeling listened to, isn't it? It doesn't matter how much mm. time someone spends with you, but if you feel like they've really listened to what you're saying, you'll come away feeling happy. Yeah. And perhaps if you're a new grad or a, uh, or just anyone listening to this, a student in particular, that may give you a little bit of relief knowing that you don't have to solve everything. <laughs> and you can't right. either. That's right. And I think that's the other skill, like for a new grad to think about, is 
you don't have to fix them in the first session, like particularly in private practice. If you have listened to them, if you've done an assessment, if you've given them something that fits with what their goal is to take away, if you don't know really what's going on, then the skill is to come and speak to the senior physio or to speak to your mentor and say, this is what I found. This is the subjective information. So I listened and I gathered a really good subjective information. This is the objective information I found. This is what I gave them. Am I on the right track? What did I miss? What should I assess next time? Um, And so, again, you don't have to know how to fix everyone every time. Like you're not going to know. I still sometimes get patients and I'm like, you're a tricky one. Um, And so I think if if you just can if you've got the skills to be able to listen to them, get the information, do your objective and then know where the gaps are in between seeing them before you see them again, find out how to fill those gaps, then see them again and then you're a bit better placed to then help them. And I think that's actually a big skill and it comes back to what we were talking about with anatomy is asking questions and and that skill not only is relevant in uni but it's relevant in the success of you as a treating practitioner too. So good. So good. You're such a good uh, clinician and educator. It's really good to, to have got your perspectives on here and share them with everyone. See, this is how lucky I am, everyone. I get to talk to people like Abby all the time. Oops, we have lost the Zoom. Oh, break in transmission. Abby's battery died. So just before we cut out, I was just saying um, how lucky I am to work with people like you and, and and have that have these conversations. And so to the students and new grads out there, build up those networks of people and, and have those conversations. Don't just shut yourself away in the corner and think you have to know everything. And I think especially if you're working with people like Abby, for example, you can learn so much from good mentors and, and colleagues. So just before your battery <laughs> Sorry, died, guys. Um, and we lost you. Um, I was, I was going to say, uh, do, you, do you have any final thoughts, anything else um, you wanted to add before we no, wrap this I thing up? just... Big things, I think, for me are I think the more you can sort of like expose yourself to different people, expose yourself to different ideas as a physio and try different things. I think if you've got a big toolbox of different skills that you can pull from, I think that then you're you're much more successful with with all the different types of people that walk in the door. I think if you pigeon your, yourself into being, you know, one idea this or one idea that, I think it's not always going to work for everyone. So obviously you want to be evidence-based and you want to be using the latest research, but I think just reading widely and working with different people and and looking at the way that different people approach different things I think is is really good way to kind of be a well-rounded physio. And obviously I'm a little bit biased that I think anatomy is a very important part of, of being a, a good physio. And it's not just a musculoskeletal physio, but I think if you think about all of those amazing neuros and all of those amazing cardio physios that, that we see, their anatomy and their physiology is second to none. And it's, you know, it's important in, in all, in all facets of the, of the field. Um, but I encourage everyone, even if you're not a a physio student, to go back and look at your anatomy and see what you can learn and see how that really does help your clinical practice. Mm. Anatomy being something that you can learn inside or outside of the profession. Absolutely. That's just there and it's so accessible. But then you've also contrasted that with all of the interpersonal skills and the development of rapport with the patient and the goal setting and everything else you've talked about, the Mm. communication, the listening skills. So yeah, it's not. It's more than just knowing anatomy, and um, well, the internet knows anatomy, doesn't it? You can ask it anything. Yeah, but it's that intersection with the person where you've we really developed. And I think really being being able to translate that knowledge to make sense to the patient. Like I, I think you physio and physio students are very health literate, and you're very educated in you know anatomical and medical knowledge and so the ability to understand that at that level but then translate it to a more sort of generalized level for your general population clients is a skill but if you can do that to provide education to patients about what's going on with them and and what their plan is I think you'll you'll find that patients will be much more on board so good thank you Abby where can people find out um, more about you or follow you online in, in Google, you of course. Um, 
You can Google me. I'm at Universal Practice um, in Fitzroy and in Malvern um, and at SportsMap. So um, I'm always happy to answer any questions anyone has or, um, you know, if anyone wants to come and have a look at what we do for Pilates or or anything, please feel free to email me, Abby, at Universal Practice, and we can touch base there. Very, very generous. And and the, the disclaimer, I think, feel like we need to repeat the disclaimer again on this episode because it's been very, very useful and um, it's something that's very applicable beyond physiotherapy and to people who are training themselves. So, of course, this is aimed at health professionals and health professional students. So um, please take the sage advice of a qualified health professional like Abby for all your health concerns and um, they know lots of things and then there might be some stuff that you don't know the internet and Google doesn't know and um, find a good doctor find a good physio um, someone who listens to you there's my disclaimer that's right. That's right. <laughs> there's my disclaimer but of course self-management is really important but also you know you've got we've got access to amazing health professionals in many countries um, we're lucky so go see them so thanks again, Abby. I really appreciate the podcast chat and I'm looking forward to seeing you again in the corridors and the teaching. Yes, we'll be back next month. We'll be back in the back in the lab. So looking forward to it. Thanks for having me, Luke. Excellent. So thanks everyone for joining us in the conversation. Can you like and share and subscribe and connect and do all the social media stuff for me, please? I really appreciate when you do that. Tag me in at Periton Physio. Tag Susanna and I. It's a shared um, social media tag for all the social media for Susanna and I at Periton Physio or me at Luke Periton. And until next time, this is Abby DeCretzer and Luke Periton wishing you all the very best with your studying, professional development and lifelong learning. 